0: You're listening to the podcast of Dr. Chip Bennett. Please consider following us and giving us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Hey, I'm Chip Bennett, and I'm joined here with uh, Dr. Warren Gage. We want to start off here by letting you know that we're going to do a fairly lengthy um, work here in the book of Revelation. What I'm hoping is, is that you'll see that even though we're going to go fairly lengthy with this, we're not going to go word by word. We're going to try to give a larger... Thematic sort of overview of what's going on, and I guess what I would ask is, is that if you are watching this or listening to this, that um, you would understand that we both have have mm-hmm. changed our mind, you know, different times on this book. We realize it's a challenging book. We realize that there are many different ways in which people look at it, but uh, we're uh, we're we're convinced that the book is in need of a context, in need of a theme, in need of a, a larger sort of overview, and that's what we're going to try to do. And so we would just uh, ask that you would you know, hang out, um, listen to what we have to say, um, you know, pick the things that you like. Maybe if you don't like something, that's okay. But we really wanna try really hard to uh, help you understand this book in a way that that, that makes uh, sense. So let's let's get after it. Let's, uh, let's start, we're gonna start a little strange probably for most people. This but- is strange
1: because we're starting with uh, chapter 12. We're starting not at the beginning, right. but at the middle. <laughs> and that's consistent with what with the predicate that you've laid down that we want to read it in context. Of course we want to read it in the context of sure. the Scripture, and I think that Revelation is very clearly closing out the canon. Mm-hmm. The themes that were introduced in Genesis, you know, the tree of life was forbidden to man. Sure. Now it's going to be open to man, and the quarrel between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent yeah. is going to be resolved, actually, in the chapter we're looking at. So we're seeing that John is conscious of the fact that he is bookending. And so we want to read Revelation in the context of Genesis, but we also want to read it in the context of the Scripture itself. Sure. And particularly John. Yep. We'll want to look at that in light of in light of the prophets. And so we you know, that's gonna be the way that we will interpret this. And we'll be alluding to lots of passages of scripture that inform what's going on here. Sure. Then we'll also be Understanding it within the context of the culture, which was not Second Temple Judaism, mm-hmm. it was Hellenism, sure. and that's a major difference. Which is why we're starting in the middle of the book. That's exactly right. I did my doctoral work, master's and doctoral work, in, in Hellenistic literature and the literature of the time: the dramatists, the you know, the, the comic Aristophanes, mm-hmm. you've yep. got Euripides, the dramas, mm-hmm. the poets, the epic poets, the uh, all of that literature. I'm finding echoes when I read the New Testament particularly. So, But I find that that really does change the way that we should approach a lot of the New Testament. We're going to start in chapter 12 because in the, in the Greek world, in the Hellenistic mm-hmm. world, the center of the book That's right. was generally the most important mm-hmm. place. Now, that in the, in the West, we read linear and logically. And we expect everything to come to a climax, right. and so we're you know we read that way, and we don't read it organically, thinking, well, how is this related to this part mm-hmm. and whatever. We go through chapter verse by verse, so we're looking at all these very interesting trees. But in the in the Hellenistic world, mm-hmm. they looked at the whole. That's right. The first time I recognized that specifically was when I was reading uh, uh, Plato's Republic. Mm-hmm. The very center, the actual mathematical center, is that famous. Uh, uh, statement of his which really answers the whole question of justice. He says that until um, philosophers become kings. kings or kings learn well and truly to philosophize, there will be no end to the troubles of man sure. or of cities. And so
0: that that key phrase is there in the middle for a sure. reason. Even there, the beginning you start with the myth of Gyges hmm. and you end with yeah, the myth of Gyges. Because and... it's chiastic Correct.
1: is what we would say that it's written with particularity which makes it that you must read these books organically. Now, that's not true just for
0: the Hellenistic documents, but I, they're all like that. And chiastic, and chiastic for, for, for readers is sort of an inverted V is the way I sort of see it, you're working to the top. And it's what's interesting is, is even like Augustine understands that writing because his confessions, he is. starts off with, he's, he's restless, mm-hmm. he ends in rest, and mm-hmm. the direct center of the book is his conversion. So it's like they're aware of how they write and which that's means that's how they would have read the scriptures. So correct. So we're, we're learning how the apostles read, how they wrote. Sure. But we're not imposing something. What mm-hmm. we're saying is, is when you go back into antiquity and you read these wonderful books, that they have a way in which they have written. And all we're saying is, is that as we all are sort of influenced by the, our culture and things that, that go on, we're just saying that the biblical writers are writing in a way the average person would have understood, which is why this spread so quickly, because it was written in ways where the average person who had gone to the theater knew knew the different literary traditions, knew how things were written. Um, th- these books make a lot of sense, which is why when you read a lot of the biblical books, some of the beginnings and the endings have same characters, maybe different different characters, but same names or different events. And then there's that center that brings to, and that, that's why we're really starting in Revelation 12 is because it gives that 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 height to that crescendo.
1: If you read Romans, you'll recognize the theme of Romans is justification or what is justice. He's rewriting the Republic, which was the primary treatise on what is justice. And he's using a dialogic method. When he does it, when you come to like chapter 9, he will anticipate the interlocutor, the questions, you know, you will say to me then, based upon Mm -hmm. the logical predicates that I've given you, you know, this is a conclusion you will draw and he will correct that or adopt it in order to advance his, mm-hmm. and there's a reason he uses the dialogue. The Republic uses a dialogue. Sure.
0: and what's interesting too, at the beginning and ending of Romans, you can go to chapter one and go to chapter 16, there's a phrase that bringing um, the obedience of faith to the nations anchors mm-hmm. that book. You which know. is the gospel. Absolutely. Yeah, so. Which is the true Which justice. is the commission. And so and brings justification. And,
1: and So he's giving a response. What uh, Luke is doing in his, uh, diptych. two books are written together mm-hmm. the treatises to Theophilus uh, the first one is going to end with the anticipated destruction of Jerusalem and the second one Paul is on his ship journey to Rome what he's doing is he's writing he's rewriting the Aeneid mm-hmm. basically which is a great epic of the founding of, uh, of Rome and so he's saying it's a new founding it's going to be not that Jerusalem of old will be destroyed but we're on our way to a new Jerusalem and that's mm-hmm. that's the idea so. I think some of these ideas now, I'm not depending just on the literature, Mm -hmm. but I'm noting that by learning the literature of the time, by learning Hellenism, we know things to look for. There are clues that we're looking to. Like for example, what have we said? We said the center is important. The very center of Mark is the transfiguration narrative Mm -hmm. in Mark chapter nine. That becomes the centerpiece of the gospel, the entire gospel. And then you have this chiastic arrangement around it you know, which which frames it. But it's clear the transfiguration was the decisive moment because this is the claim. The voice comes down to say about Jesus mm-hmm. of the transfiguration, this is my beloved son, hear him. So heaven, the Father sure. is confessing. And this is the one that hear me, <laughs> Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like unto me, him you will hear. And Moses has now disappeared, remember, who appeared with Moses and and Elijah. And so that central event is so critical. Here is the new Moses and the new Elijah, and that's Christ. He has a unique preeminence. Mm -hmm. And the Father says, this is the one. Virtually equidistant from that, at the very beginning of the gospel, it's the baptism narrative, Mm -hmm. and it says that, when Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were rent, and the Spirit came down like a dove, rested on Jesus, and the Father spoke there too, This is my beloved Son, the one you know, mm. with whose, whom my soul is pleased. And that's virtually the length of that from the confession of the Lord being Christ at the transfiguration. If you take the same distance and go to the end of the book, you come to the confession of the, the centurion. centurion. It says the earth was rent, mm-hmm. the, 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 veil. The, the veil of the temple was rent. And then the, the centurion, he says, truly this was the Son of God. Mm-hmm. It, and it's virtually mathematically equidistant, mm-hmm. which means that the book is aware of its own geography Correct. to think about it. And, and that it, you read them organically. That's mm-hmm. how we want to read Revelation. We, that's why we're starting in chapter twelve. It's the very center, and that would have been tremendously significant to the first-century mm-hmm. people. Same thing, for example, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Yep. Matthew arranges mm-hmm. his narrative around seven mountains. That's right. He creates a mountain range. These seven mountains are chiastically related. So the first mountain is related to the seventh mountain. The first mountain is found in chapter four, it's the Mount of the Temptation, where Satan says, if you will fall down and worship me, I will give you the nations and all their glory. And of course the temptation is, you will have everything that's promised to Mm -hmm. you without the cross. cross. But when you come to the last mountain, Jesus tells the disciples to meet him upon a particular mountain in, in Galilee. And there he says to them, because he has been obedient mm-hmm. to the cross. He says, the Father has given all authority into my right. hands. So that that is answering the temptation narrative. And we understand by reading it in context, we understand it very differently. The next one is the Mount of the Sermon on the Mount, right. the second mountain, and that corresponds to the sixth mountain in Matthew, which is the Olivet Discourse, right. the Mount of Olives. And, and we can see that we have a mountain of blessing and a mountain of cursing okay. because you have the curses on the Pharisees. And Moses had commanded Joshua, remember, we have a mountain of blessing and a mountain of cursing. Sure. Only here, the mountain of blessing is in the Galilee of the nations, and the mountain of cursing will become the Jerusalem that's going to be destroyed. That's, right. that's the whole idea of the temple and all that's going to be destroyed in the Olivet Discourse, so all that's related. Mm-hmm. Then we come up, uh, the third mountain in Matthew is the Mount of Solitude. We're going, Jesus goes away from the disciples, he sends them across the mm-hmm. sea, and he goes to be alone with God, mm-hmm. then that corresponds to the Mount of the Transfiguration okay. in 17. And the middle of the book, and the literal middle of Matthew, mathematically, is chapter 15. That's the fourth mountain. And what's the significance of the fourth mountain? The fourth mountain is where Jesus has fed the 4,000. I believe it's in the context, where he, it's maybe between the two feedings. But anyway, he feeds Israel, but he doesn't give, he doesn't pray that God would rain down bread. He gives the bread from his own hand. So he's doing what Moses did, but he's also doing what the Lord did and showing that he combines in his humanity that divinity Mm -hmm. can create ex nihilo out of nothing. And then they bring the, 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 the sick and the infirm to him. And so he opens the blind eyes, and the but they deaf come to the ears. top of the mountain to him. To the top of the mountain. This is the fort, This is the very right. center. That's so, right. what is Matthew intending by that? What does he want us to see? That this is the very summit of his gospel. Now, notice how important that is. It's not the end. Is here. And he's saying this is saying something very unique about Jesus. What is it? Who is the one on the mountain? who told Moses that he could make the blind to see or the deaf to hear. Uh Yes, it's the Lord. Matthew realizes that Jesus is enacting that. He is the Lord of Sinai who is doing these things, feeding Israel in the wilderness
0: and then healing the infirm, uh, But he's a greater than Moses. You know, at the beginning you have the whole, in Matthew 2 where, you know, Herod now is killing kids like it was in Moses' mm-hmm. day. And we get this idea that he goes to Egypt, comes back, he's he's enacting. But on when Moses went to the top of the mountain, nobody could come. Mm-hmm. When Jesus goes to the top of the mountain, all of the people are coming to him and they glorify the God of Israel is what Matthew says. I think too, you know, um, in a society that didn't have a printing press and didn't have the ability to have you know, all the the way we read or iPads or phones, you know, if you could go up the mountain, so to speak, and this is the part of the V of the chiasm, if you go up the mountain, a lot of times they walk back down that mountain as you've shown, mm-hmm. you know, you got mountain one and mountain seven, mm-hmm. mountain two, mountain six. If you if you know that mountain, you know the way down. You can anticipate you, you, it's it. It's exactly right. If you could anticipate it, you've understood it.
1: You understand how these these various narratives relate. You understand that they're organic. All of that is suggesting to us that if we want to understand Revelation, we, we need to understand it in the context of the scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will see that we need to understand it in the context of John. Which
0: is interesting though, when you think about it, you made the comment that we're, we're doing a lot of Genesis here in Revelation. What's mm-hmm. interesting is, is if you go to the Gospel of John, there's all kinds of Genesis in the Gospel of John. You know, and that's mm-hmm. is that coincidental, is that just, because or is that does that say something about the, the writer?
1: Well I think it says a lot. First of all, in John's gospel, he begins by saying you know, by looking back to the first creation. In the beginning was the word, looking at he created all things. So that's mm-hmm. really the first creation. Right. At the end of Revelation, he looks forward, but I saw a new heavens yeah. and a new earth. So you've got the whole space of yeah. time. If you read those two books as a diptych together, and then he introduces the quarrel between light and darkness, the light shone into the world in mm-hmm. Christ, and the darkness tr- tried to overcome, tried to s- extinguish the Jay. light, and but that quarrel is never resolved within, within the four corners of John's Gospel. You have to look to the end of Revelation, and there you mm-hmm. understand that the light Jay. extinguishes the darkness, and there is eternal light going Jay. forward. And so that's beginning to suggest that there is a consciousness at work in, right. in the in the Johannine enterprise. I think the most telling thing is at the very beginning of the gospel. You have Jesus who has come from heaven as a man. Mm. And, you know the word became That's flesh. Right. And John will call him the bridegroom, mm. and he offers two invitations to come in chapter one to the to the disciples. When they ask him where are you where are you staying, he was like, "Come and see." Mm-hmm. And then the one who hears says to his brother, "Come and see." You know, uh-huh. we think we found the Messiah. That's right. So you have the bridegroom, who has two invitations to come. But in in the four corners of John, there's no bride. Now that seems incomplete. Where is the bride? We have the bridegroom come from heaven. Well, at the end of Revelation, the bride comes Mm -hmm. from heaven. Mm -hmm. And there are two invitations to to come to the wedding. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And so, is all of this suggesting, perhaps, that we should read John and Revelation like we read Luke and Acts? As a diptych, mm-hmm. as two parts of mm-hmm. the same interi- yes. literary enterprise, it raises the question of the relationship of John's Gospel right. and Revelation. And anyone trained in literature would know that's a <laughs> right. fundamental issue you have to decide: are they are they written by the same hand? That's and exactly if they right. are, then that that gives a massive and immediate right. context. So we're going to see as we go through this, we're going to be relating it to Genesis, we're going to be relating it to John, to the rest of to many other. Books in in the sure. Bible, it needs a context, and and then if all of those relationships are consistent, we have a good basis for saying that we've understood the text That's itself. Right.
0: And, and then we can even really start to try to get an idea of what it's saying, mm-hmm. because I think that those are really important. Because you know a lot of the commentaries, and you know, you've seen them too. You know they're they're like well, it doesn't make a difference who wrote this or who wrote that. But no, nobody who studies literature would say authorship doesn't matter. Because you want to know who wrote these books. Because and one of the tells is is themes. Because if you if you would go to a library and pull ten books off the shelf, you probably wouldn't have the same themes because they're all ten different authors. But yet, if you pulled the same author with three books, you might find a lot of parallels or word usages or vocabulary mm-hmm. that would be consistent with the writer. And if that's the case, if it's not the case, then it's 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 you throw it out the window. But if it is the case it does start to raise the questions, do we have some sort of common authorship here? And if we do, and, and the themes are tracking with each other, how, how do we then read those things? And I think that's what we're trying to, to, to mm-hmm. at least suggest, and then, and then the burden of proof is on us to put that together and flesh it out, but the, the, the reality is, is it does change the way we might possibly approach these books if in fact these things are, are the case. And I, and I think that those who will listen and watch this are going to um, be pleasantly surprised at the amount of data that's here. Let's, uh... So we're going to apply this. Now, I
1: think one of the things we need to explain is why is this the last book, if it's related to John as tightly as we've mm-hmm. been expecting. I think that the same question could be asked of, of Luke and Acts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, um, they're divided by the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. Why, is, why? It's because of the it's because of the attractiveness of context, and it's very evident to anyone who reads this, even superficially, that John is closing out the canon of the Scripture, mm-hmm. and so uh, he's looking forward to the new heavens and the sure. earth. But I mean, he's describing a world where the curse is gone, where death mm-hmm. is gone. So all of that began in Genesis mm-hmm. in the garden. Now that's being restored. Okay. He has it actually restored sure. in the garden when Christ sure. awakens from death and comes forth from the earth he's seeing a, a new world a new creation and we were forbidden from partaking of the tree of life in the garden mm-hmm. after the fall and they're driven out from the from the, from the tree of life and so the whole bible in a many in many ways is a quest for the tree of life mm-hmm. so when we come to the to revelation uh when we come to the letters jesus will say uh, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of sure. life in the, in the midst of the garden of God. And then at the end, he has a vision of the throne of God and the trees of sure. life and all. And so we, we have a sense that themes that were introduced at in the beginning are now being concluded. So there is a natural affinity of the book of Revelation to be at the end because it's actually being attracted sure to Genesis. Sure,
0: and I don't think that any, I don't think you would say this, I don't think anybody thinks that necessarily the order of the books as they appear in the canon is some sort of inspired deal. I think the church realized that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are more what we would consider to be mm-hmm. the sort of teachings about who Jesus was, and then you have Acts, which naturally follows that, and then you have the epistles, and most of them are sorted by by the actual length. Of course, Revelation, just is, as you've said, just, it feels when you read it that this should be the end book. No, nobody questions that when you read it. That explains the separation. It's not like Luke and Acts. No scholar that I'm, I mean, I'm sure there's somebody out there, but the majority of scholarship seems to agree that Luke and Acts were written together. And it, But you don't usually intuit that as a reader of scripture unless you've gone to school or you've had some academic training. And I think that that John and Revelation, which we're going to suggest should be read together, um, just because they're spaced out sequentially in, in, the, in the canon of Scripture d- doesn't mean that they can't be together because Luke and Acts are obviously written together.
1: Th- that accounts also for the, what's called the synoptic problem because you've got Matthew, Mark, and <laughs> that's Luke, right, that's right. and then you've got John. That's right. And John doesn't seem to aggregate with Matthew, <laughs> Mark, and Luke, but John is aggregating with Revelation, mm. as we will see. And so all kinds of theories come up from that that you know, there were two... Writers of the, we're going to see that these books are woven together mm-hmm. by chiastic and by consecutive correspondence. Yeah. They're actually woven together. Yeah. So there's no question about the commonality yeah. of authorship.
0: I think it will be, um, it be shocking yeah. to people when they see the choices of words that are used because we're going to do that in the sequence of them. I mean, it, it's it starts to become it's almost overwhelming. You know, I mean, that's the oh, wor- is, that's the and, word I would use is overwhelming. You start to go. Hold on. There's no other way to see this, and I mean, this is yeah. going to be fun when we do this. So let's begin. Okay, let's, so let's go. go. to uh, Revelation, Revelation chapter 12. twelve. Turn with us,
1: sir, or if you're. So this is the very center of Revelation. So let's see why John makes this the centerpiece. Sure. He tells us now a great sign appeared in heaven. Now there are going to be two signs in heaven, um, and when he uses the word sign, remember in the Gospel. Yeah. He says uh, these signs are written that you might believe. He's not presenting us with propositions, interestingly, mm-hmm. although right. I think you can justly deduce propositions. Sure. When you come to understand the
0: sign, that's when faith can begin, and so so we want to read Which this Which again, humbly. it's an interesting note. You have the seven signs in John, mm-hmm. okay, and, and here we're having some of the same languages being used. And in, 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 it, it just should be noted, it, it's not, it doesn't mean that it's probative at this point, but it should Per somebody up to, to to see that there's some mm-hmm. commonality here. Yeah,
1: there's a sign. Jesus says mm-hmm. there is a sign in his washing of the feet of the disciples. Right. He said, "What I've what I've done, you don't understand now, but you will hereafter." There's a sign, and so that sign he breaks into seven action verbs. Mm-hmm. He rose. He laid aside. He took and girded himself. He poured water in a basin, and begin to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with right. his tears. So that's not insignificant.
0: But I think it's even more so, especially if somebody has not had any familiarity with original language, and we're not saying that you have to have that to understand the Bible, but the, 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 the way he's written it, um, there's there's a very particular way where you should pick up on the on the verbs that are going on there, and there's seven. And he wants us to understand that. And there's a reason
1: for it. And we don't understand the foot washing until we understand the significance of the seven verbs. So here there's a sign. So we need to understand what is the sign if we want to comprehend, follow, follow John's thought. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. And she's with child, and she cries out in her labor and her pain, for hours are come has come for her deliverance. Then another sign appeared in heaven. So we're looking at heaven, mm-hmm. and Revelation's perspective, most of the perspective is in heaven. So these signs that he's seeing are in heaven. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold a great fiery red dragon, mm-hmm. having seven heads and 10 horns, seven diadems on his head now that's pretty ferocious let's Mm -hmm. think about that for a minute we have the woman and we have a dragon now the problem with dragon is that when we think of that we think of tyrannosaurus rex right or something like that that's not what the word dracon in greek comes from an ancient root which means serpent yeah so what we're to think of is like the chinese dragon yeah you know the The one where
0: they carry it around and
1: they carry it and and it moves serpentine through the streets we're to think of A serpent a snake so it says he's great for his immensity and then fiery red uh, fiery is his wrath you know Jesus will comes with eyes of fire but he's he's coming with wrath and anger and red uh, he's you know it's the color of blood Mm -hmm. death and warfare so another side appeared in heaven great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns The seven heads makes him like a hydra, and the horns speak of his strength. I mean, he's virtually unconquerable, with seven diadems on his head. Mm -hmm. So he crowns himself with a royal authority. Now, this sets the stage for a great irony. In the context of the book, an irony is one of the key aspects of the battle here that's going to be depicted. Because in chapter four, we've already been introduced. John was told not to weep because Mm -hmm. the lion of the tribe of Judah Mm -hmm has come. That's and right. so when he looks, he looks to see the lion, <laughs> but what he sees is a lamb that's, that's right. wounded. That's right. Vulnerable is the lamb who has overcome the great red dragon. So those are your two, your protagonists and your antagonists in the, in this great book. Which
0: is, which is a thematic issue in this book is, you know, when there's persecution, when, when the nations rage, when various leaders come that persecute, we don't respond in the worldly way, which is through a natural sword and and fighting, you know, in some great military conquest or whatever. We 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 fight by being washed by the blood of this Lamb and by giving the testimony that He gave, in the which way is of, martyrdom. That's exactly right. Which is suffering. That's exactly death right. in hope of new life. That's right. But but so. but, but the idea is is that God's kingdom mm-hmm. comes through a completely different way than the way the world's kingdoms come. And we're going to see that consistently oh, too.
1: You have to completely all of your horizons are erased. That's right. If you're going to come to this book, you have to understand there are so such radical different.
0: <laughs> we call it revelation is what we're we're receiving from God through scripture. And and what we're saying is is that God is revealing things to you and me that we wouldn't know by nature like we would know by nature oh i'm a sinner and i need god's grace we probably think "Oh, i'm better than my neighbor okay but but god's revelation come and to understand god and his kingdom you have to be able to Our take categories, on categories absolutely we have to be ready to 100%. let go of them
1: that's the whole idea so now let's let's look seven diadems on his head and his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth traditionally almost universally christians have said this mean this speaks of the demons that fell with satan so it's about a third of the ones the innumerable company that god had made and threw them down to the earth so they're captured with him. If mm-hmm. you think of a rock, you know, just kind yeah. of bringing down in mm-hmm. Tolkien's uh, fellowship there. So anyway, the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born.
0: This is sort of the background of like, okay, so the whole book that you're reading and there's all this stuff going on, this is sort of the real battle that's going on. It's not just the the, the leaders that are oppressing and stuff. Although All of that is going on. This sort of whisks you away to see something. This is a cosmic battle. This is the real
1: deal. Yes. Now, what is this based on? Where does this
0: woman (laughs)
1: who's in labor and and then this serpent who hates the woman's seed and Mm -hmm. wants to kill the serpent's seed, and that goes back to Genesis 3, 14, and 15, which is God says, "'I will put enmity between your seed,' uh, the serpent, speaking Mm -hmm. to the serpent, "'and her seed,' the Mm -hmm. woman." You know, that enmity that God puts that's there right. is an enmity unto death. That's right. And that's going to be the way that the history of redemption will unfold. Mm-hmm. And, and he will bruise your heel, but the head of the serpent will be, be crushed. crushed. That's, that's the significant aspect of this. So mm-hmm. now let's put this together in its context. The context is John is showing us how that oracle of redemption in Genesis 3.15 has now been worked out. Because mm-hmm. an oracle is, it speaks with such brevity that you can't fully understand mm-hmm. it until once it's happened, then you can see it all unpacking sure. itself. You can think of Croesus, you know, and his the Delphi, the spirit, you know, of Apollo that would speak in or, oracular language. If you go to war, you'll destroy a great kingdom. And the irony of that is, he's, the kingdom that's going to be destroyed is Croesus's, not <laughs> the Persians. So we've got an oracle in Genesis three fifteen. What does that mean? That will be the, the great contest of redemption. That contest takes place at Calvary, and we'll, we'll talk about that in context. But here, John is saying that that context has already happened, and so he's looking at, at Christ's death and resurrection in light of that and drawing conclusions. So he's saying that the history of redemption has now come to fulfillment, mm-hmm. that all that was intended in that oracle has now been fulfilled. So the question is, well, who is the woman see mm-hmm. and who is the seed now how do we approach this who is the woman it's not simple there are at least three women here that come together to define who this woman is and the seed of the woman must be a son of each of these women it's really incredible the way that he has he has woven this text together like for example when he says she's clothed with the sun the moon under her feet and uh, this 12 stars. That's the first clue we have to her identity. And what does that refer to? That goes back to Genesis 37. And that was Joseph's dream. The sun and the moon and the 12 stars would bow down to him. And Jacob, his father, rebukes him, you know. Your mother and I, and his mother is already dead. Your 11 brothers, are we going to bow down to you? This speaks of something different, but it speaks of the same thing. What does that mean? First of all, we know that the seed of the woman is the seed of Sarah. That's the first woman. Mm-hmm. See, because all of those were involved within the family of Abraham. He, has to, he will be a descendant of Abraham, and he will be a descendant of Sarah. He will be like a Joseph. Well, we see that in the gospel because after he feeds the uh, 5,000, you know, he's he's the bread come down for all men. And the religious leaders say, how can this man give bread to all the world? Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, we know? And so there John is, he likes these ambiguity words. You remember, if if you're going to be born again, you have to be born anything from above (coughs) or again. Both are correct. He always goes with both of them. And so here, Isn't Jesus the son of Joseph? Yes, he's the son of Joseph of Bethlehem, Mm -hmm. but he's also the son of Joseph, the son of Jacob. Joseph, in the fulfillment of his ministry, gave bread not only to his own family, but to the whole world. And so uh, that's being uh, assumed that we should read it with that kind of Mm -hmm. depth and understanding that he's drawing from all of these to show us who Christ is. This is a revelation, remember, of Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. So the first thing we see is the woman means he will be born of Israel. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red serpent having seven heads and 10 horns. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child. Now this sounds like it's referring to Matthew 2.16 where Herod tries to kill the infant and Herod is clearly a serpent, and all the Herodian kings are like a hydra. Mm-hmm. They're different heads, you know, you've got Antipas, you've got Herod the Great, you've got Archelaus, you've got Antipas, and there are other Herods. But It's like a hydra, and they do try to, and that shows that enmity, he's trying to destroy the Christ, mm-hmm. and of course, he's, he's preserved. But this one is ready to devour the child as soon as it was born, but the born is, this, this being born here is not The nativity of jesus as we will see we have to understand metaphorically what this birth is she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron so what does that mean he's to rule not just israel but all the nations Mm -hmm. and he has the rod of iron that goes back to psalm 2. the lord's christ the messiah will reign over all the earth with a rod of iron that is a, a rod that's indestructible it's the promise that's given to the son of david so this child is going to be a son of David, and we know that that is true through Mary because of the genealogy Mm -hmm. in Luke chapter 3. So he is a son of Sarah, he is a son of Mary, and there's one other woman that's being alluded to here, we'll see that in a minute, but he will be born to be Messiah. Chapter, mm-hmm. Psalm 2 is about the Messiah. His royal title will come through David. Mm-hmm. His um, messianic title will come through the seed of Abraham. Mm-hmm. So all of that is converging. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That tells us that what we're talking about is not his birth, but his resurrection. The language here is of his resurrection. He was caught up. When he was born, Satan, uh, the serpent, was trying to kill him, but he was caught up. He, was a, he ascended into heaven. So that birth means he's had a third birth. What is the third birth? Jesus was born of Mary in Bethlehem. That's the nativity Mm -hmm. story. But in his role as a son of Adam, he was born like Adam of the earth. He came forth from the earth in his resurrection. The womb of Adam was was the earth. He had no mother. Mm -hmm. He had no Mm -hmm. physical mother. Jesus and Adam are unique in the fact that their only father is God. So when Jesus comes forth from the earth, he is reenacting the creation of man in Genesis. And so the earth then, from the rest of the scripture, is regarded as the mother of man. He has three mothers that John is introducing here that define who the the woman is so. It's like it, it, Plato has titles to rule. There are certain things sure. about people that distinguish mm-hmm. them out and give them the credentials <clears throat> to rule. And the pharaohs had five royal titles. You know the, the different cartouche, uh, the titulary is called the titles, the names mm-hmm. of the pharaohs. And so here he's giving a, a little titulary of Christ. He's the seed of the woman. He's uniquely the seed of the woman. And no mm-hmm. one else can be the seed of the woman. Like like him, even though we're all born of women, right? But we know that he's uniquely the one that was intended in Genesis 3 because he's the son of Abraham, the son of David, and he's also born of the earth. Now those become important because the serpent will turn his anger against the mother, and so we need to understand his anger will go against those three communities particularly. So he was caught up to God and to his throne, that's the ascension, and then from that throne brings in Psalm 110. He will exercise the scepter to bring all Mm -hmm. of the earth under the scepter of David, and the earth will be his footstool. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Now, after she's she's delivered the child, what will happen to the woman? Well, the woman are these three communities that have brought forth the, the, the seed. And so the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. Now, that's significant, because we read it in light of the gospel, because Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, remember that in John 14, and that's a place in heaven, in my Father's house, right? Yep. But here we read that the God has also prepared a place for the woman, and the wilderness is the 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 place where the woman will be until Christ returns and has subdued the nations. That's you know you see that in Paul's theology in First Corinthians 10, he's analogizing our experience to mm-hmm. Israel in the wilderness, mm-hmm. and so after Christ has been taken away, it's like we're in the wilderness, we're waiting for the final entry into the land that will be brought about by Yeshua, by Mm -hmm. Joshua. So all of this is coming together and converging. So he said, and God prepares a place for us. So he's preparing a place in heaven, but he's also here preparing a place on earth. Mm -hmm. And that will be for our protection, not necessarily for our survival, but a place of divine protection. So and then she will be there for 1,260 days. And that's half of this heptad, half, you know, it's 42 months, it's, it's the three and a half years. Sure. So it's this period of incompleteness. And So I, I think that goes back to Daniel 9, but that's another, we'll get to that at another time. Then he says, now, now what happens after Christ is caught up to heaven? He says, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the serpent and the dragon and his angels fought. So so Michael is the only angel who has the authority to go against Satan, the Satan. And we know from the oracle about the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, that the enemy spirit is to ascend and to replace God, to ascend mm-hmm. upon, upon the mountain. The I, the, north. I yeah, will, the I wills. I will, I will be great, he's gonna supplant God. And so the one who can go against it, Mikael in Hebrew means, who is like God? It's his name is a rebuke to the enemy, mm-hmm. if you want to think of it that way. These two angels. And so, he, he, um, he fights, and he has to, remember, he had, there is a fight over the body of Moses. It's very, uh, it's alluded to in Jude, but here, and he rebukes him, he says, the Lord has to rebuke you. He doesn't mm-hmm. have the Giant. authority to go against this satanic creature, but he leads the, uh, the armies of heaven They fight the dragon and his angels, and they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven. There's that language again. Mm -hmm. They have no place in heaven Mm -hmm. any longer. Now, this relates to a verse in the gospel, because Caiaphas, who is a false prophet, remember? Yeah. He's called a prophet.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: The man, John says, he spoke prophetically, but he said... Um, it's better that one man perish than, than that the nation mm-hmm. perish. And if we don't stop this, the Romans will come and take away our place. He's zealous for his place in the temple, mm-hmm. in the temple that, is, that Christ has said is going to be destroyed. So they will be cast out of that place. That judgment mm-hmm. has already been announced. And so they've lost their place in the temple in Jerusalem, and that means they've lost their place in heaven. And here uh, it says, they did not prevail, nor was there a place found for them in heaven any longer. So Satan and his angels being cast out of heaven anticipates the being, the sure. Caiphas being cast out as well. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. And I think
0: this right here, this is what's, there's a lot of people that try to focus in on dragon up here in verse three mm-hmm. and try to act like, well, it doesn't say the serpent or anything, okay, but if you just follow down here, it's pretty clear who, I mean, so if you, if you missed it up here, he, he's making, he, even though we know that the word and 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 the root word for, for for snake and the the idea of the Chinese dragon is there. I I think this right here becomes, makes it clear. Just makes it super clear who we're talking about.
1: And we're talking about Satan because that's not so clear. And Satan Satan exactly right.
0: And Genesis three comes in masquerade as a snake because yeah. there's people that say the serpent in Genesis three wasn't Satan. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah. that's and that's that, that's not just um, non Christians who try to say that. That's also evangelical Christians that try to say that, um, you know. And I understand when you're reading Genesis alone, it, it, you may not be able to say that was definitely Satan. Just, but, but we're not reading a book that was just one book. We're reading sixty-six with divine authorship, and this is clearly telling us that this dragon was the Satan of old, which is helping us understand what's going on in Genesis three, which all puts all this together.
1: It also explains a verse in. In the gospel, because Satan in Genesis came in masquerade. Mm-hmm. He didn't come with you know banners oh, yeah. flying. I'm Satan. <laughs> I'm right, the great. No. Ab- uh, he comes craftily, sure, as uh, the serpent, yeah. And uh, which was given, man was supposed to take uh, dominion over the beast. Right. And what happens is the beast takes dominion over mm-hmm. the woman, and then the man. And so that overthrows the cosmic man, order. The cosmic order and begins the history of redemption. Then when Christ comes. When he's talking to Nicodemus, remember he says? That's right, John 3. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now his lifting up is actually through the cross. Here he was caught up to God. That's actually through he is to go through the cross, but when he's lifted up, he said, he will be like the serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. And you're thinking, what does Jesus mean? I mean, we know him as the Lamb of God and the Lion of (laughs) Judah, but the serpent? And he's comparing himself to that because what happens is that the heart of our redemption is a cosmic trick. He's paying the serpent in kind. The serpent came in the masquerade, Satan came in the masquerade of a serpent Mm -hmm. to deceive the woman. Christ comes in the masquerade of a serpent to deceive Satan. And Paul confirms that when he says that if the powers of darkness had known, they would never never crucify the Lord of of glory. So he came, the holy, harmless, undefiled Savior came in the image of a serpent, the image of evil, in order to deceive Satan into destroying him that we might be set free. That's powerful. And that you're seeing all of these themes that are beginning to be played out here. His angels were cast out with him. Now he says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdoms of our God and the power of his Christ have come the accuser of our brethren
0: who accused them before our God. This is important here, this word accuser. Uh um, We get our word category from that. Yes. Okay, and um, that's so important because we're really doing the work of the devil when we categorize people, when we put when labels we on them, them. yes, mm-hmm. we, we put them in categories. Oh, that person is a this, or that person—that's what he does. He puts people in categories. I think that's mm-hmm. it's so important because we sometimes don't realize we're even doing the devil's work for him without even. But I think that's important because I don't think most people realize that that word, um, you know, accuser, is where we get our word category from.
1: This is also connected to the gospel too, because in the gospel they bring, oh, in chapter eight they bring a woman. Was clearly an adulteress mm. into the presence of Jesus, and they all categorize her. Yep, that's the word that's used. That's right. He will, say, Jesus will, will say. Remember when when they've all left, he casts them out of the temple, mm-hmm. which is using the same. It's a lot of borrowed language that yep. connects to this chapter. And here is a woman of shame, and Jesus just for, forgives her. Yep. She never, it never says she begs for forgiveness or repents. He just he just out of his love, he forgives mm-hmm. her. Because he knows that these same accusers, they're seeking to accuse him. Mm-hmm. So basically, they're treating her like a whore. Mm-hmm. It's a harsh word, but that's the reality of it. And there is some reality. I mean, she was justly mm-hmm. chargeable. I mean, they had the witnesses in everything. I mean, John says that. But Jesus drives out these temple, you know. Mm-hmm. Basically, he's showing they have the heart of the whore. Mm-hmm. and this whore he saves. So all that language is, is the same. The one, they're cast out of the temple, sure. and he's gonna cast them out of heaven. So anyway, it's part of his purging. He hears this loud voice in heaven, now salvation, strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. In the verse, at the end of chapter 11, there were lightnings, and noises, and thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. Because the seventh angel sounded, you remember in verse 15, and when the seventh angel sounded, these are the angels with the trumpets. Mm -hmm. When the seventh angel sounds in Joshua at Jericho, the the city falls. Correct. The last trumpet Paul talks about till the last trumpet. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a series. There's seven trumpets. We know this from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Marshall Scroll from Qumran. There's seven trumpets. They're actually, they, we have names. There's the trumpet of the assembly, the trumpet of pursuit. The last one is, is, is significant here because that's when you know the city walls collapse and everything. And all of heaven, when the seventh angel sounds, all of heaven shouts, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And so all of that noise is going on in heaven when this takes place. Now, that's gonna be important later when we see what the echo of this is in the gospel. And it says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. Now, we've come through to chapter 12 through verse 11. I wanna finish the chapter, but I wanna ask the question, does this relate to anything in the gospel? Thunderings in heaven, there are voices that are speaking, Satan is cast out of heaven onto the earth, and then Christ is caught up to heaven. So we have this great cosmic reversal. Satan cast down, Christ raised up. That's the centerpiece of the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, in 1 John, uh, the very center of 1 John is when he says... Verse 8 verse eight of chapter three when he says, this reason Christ came into the world that he might destroy the works of the devil. Mm -hmm. So he comes down to destroy the works of the devil and then he ascends. So you've Mm -hmm. got the same centerpiece that we find in Revelation of John, we find in the general epistle of John. Perhaps that speaks to authorship. What then we ask ourselves, well, what is the center of the gospel? Of John. What is the center of John? That center is not the mathematical center. It's the literary center because it's the triumphal entry. And it's framed by the two the foot-washing washing narratives. Mary of Bethany washes, anoints the feet of Jesus, and then Jesus washes in the feet of the disciples. That's, that's chapter 11 and chapter 13. Chapter 12 is the literary center of the gospel. And let's take a look at that, the account of the triumphal entry. And in verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled and what shall I say father save me from this hour but for this purpose I came to this hour what is his purpose his purpose is to destroy the works of the devil father glorify your name now this is while he's on his way to Jerusalem and then it says a voice came from heaven saying I have both glorified it and will glorify it again now the people who stood by heard it and some said it thundered others said an angel has spoken to him. Mm-hmm. They heard articulate speech. The word uh, for thunder in Hebrew is coal, and that's the word for voice. So they were hearing the voice of God. Here they heard something taking place in heaven. They heard thunder, which takes place in heaven, and then they heard an, the voice of an angel speaking. So angels are speaking. And Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now, is the judgment of this world now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. That'll be the gospel mission. What he's saying, he said this, signifying by what death he should die. And what is and he's talking? Then they talk about his, what does he mean by being lifted up? It's not lifted up to glory; it's lifted up to his death on the mm-hmm. cross but then will come the glory, the ascension. So what is he saying? He interrupts this because some phenomena happens. Mm-hmm. The phenomena happen and are noticeable mm-hmm. because people hear voices in heaven, they hear thunderings, and Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So he is seeing Satan being cast mm-hmm. down and he knows that he must be lifted up. It's the same idea. Yeah, This great... Uh, Reversal. Reversal. You know, Satan will be cast down and the Son of Man will be lifted up. And so the question is, why did John put that at the literary center of his gospel? Because it corresponds precisely with the literary center of Revelation. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that there is an axis, a cosmic axis going on here? This great reversal that we see is so significant to John's Mm -hmm. theology, because we see it even in 1 John, that Satan is going to be cast out, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. Is that the centerpiece of John's whole vision of Christ? Is that the centerpiece of his understanding of what Jesus will do. And if that is the case, is it possible that Jesus is hearing that war in heaven and that what happens is at the transfiguration, Satan, is cast out? And we know that in the next chapter, Satan will enter into Judas, see? So we can kind of track him that way, but so he's on the earth, clearly. But if that's the case, then John 12 and Revelation 12 are the cosmic axis between heaven and earth. And what they were hearing at the transfiguration was the war in heaven. That shifts the ground on a lot of things massively mm-hmm. if we take it that way. Now verse 12 will quickly conclude the rest part of the chapter. Therefore, Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. While there is a plan of redemption for man when mm-hmm. he's fallen for, right. for the angels, They're called the elect angels, Uh and the non-elect angels, there is no plan of redemption, which means Satan has never known mercy. And so he comes down, his wrath is against the seed of the woman. He enters into Judas, and he will accomplish his wrath through Judas. In the next chapter, he will enter into Judas. He will incarnate himself. Was it
0: Luther that wrote the, um, on earth he has no equal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that, that's mm-hmm. the, that's just that's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Very very strong foe um, that with no hope, no mm-hmm. n- no like it's future. Fight for death. Yeah. yeah yeah yeah. So now so the psychology
1: of Satan is what we're talking about there. And mm-hmm. Paul says, "No, your enemy." You Which right. so anyway. He says, "We're not ignorant of his devices. Mm-hmm. He, he knows. You know, he doesn't play fair." Now, when the dragon or the serpent had seen that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And when it says he persecuted the woman, who is it that he's persecuting? We need to consider that for a minute. What is the evidence? This is telling about the rest of the story. What happened to the woman after she had given birth and after he was caught up to heaven. So the woman was given two wings of the great eagle. That's the language of the Exodus. That is, God will superintend their way through the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and a half time. So there again, that's like the 42 months, like the 1,260 days. So it's all the same time. So she's going to be um, nourished for the entire time that she is on the earth before Christ returns. Mm -hmm. So the serpent spewed water out of its mouth like a flood. Now what is that? I think that's speaking of the venom. But it's using the language of the flood. He's trying to destroy her. And so, after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. I think what this means is the serpent or Satan, there is a demonic energy against the mothers of the Christ. Now, who are the mothers of the Christ? The first mother is Israel. Mm -hmm. And all through all the centuries, there has been a You can't say anything other than a demonic madness against the Jew. That's right. I mean, it's it's and it's energized Mm -hmm. by something that is beyond. Sure. Same thing is true, I think, of the of Christ's claim that he is the Son of David. That claim and that community—that's the faithful community. Those are the believers who have acknowledged Mm -hmm. Christ as the Messiah. Remember, Christianity is a Jewish quarrel. Mm And those of us who have acknowledged Christ as Messiah, uh, we too are the victims of this venomous flood. Because we've been grafted in to
0: to the people of God. I mean, Romans 11 clearly says that.
1: So we take on that identity. That's Mm -hmm. the only only way that we could be called a royal priesthood is if we are espoused to Christ because we take our royalty from his Davidic line and our priesthood from his Mm -hmm. Melchizedekian order. So anyway, so the, but it says the earth helped the woman. Now the earth is the third mother. He turns his wrath against the earth. What comes to my mind there is uh, Isengard in Tolkien's uh, Fellowship. Remember how Saruman is, is perverting the earth, tearing down all the trees and mining all the metals to make this army for death, for Mordor. And so that, that exploitation of the earth That mindlessness that you know this is God's creation that he gave to us. Uh, It was to be blessed and it was to be prospered. I think there's there's something here I think there is a demonic energy uh, against against that too. And so the earth opens its mouth. Interesting language and so you may see that with Cain and Abel. Remember, the earth has opened its mouth to receive mm-hmm. the blood of your brother, mm-hmm. which cries out for justice. There's something analogous to that going on. And so, which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth, there is a, a, an affinity between the, um, the remnant of faith and original people of the covenant and the earth. There is, there is something that God uses providentially to preserve the woman until he's accomplished his purposes. And the dragon, the serpent, was enraged with the woman. I mean, we sense that. Mm -hmm. The church is, this is the most, more persecution has taken place in the last century and this century than ever in the time of the church. Church is massively persecuted everywhere. The dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring and to keep the, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. That testimony, how did they overcome? Remember, it says they overcame uh, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony is martyrdom because they did not love their lives to death. So this is not a promise of protection in a prepper sense. It's the promise of protection
0: in the proper sense, that is. It's the promise of the perseverance of the saints. Exactly. I mean, that, that God will... Will, will bring to completion, as Paul says in Philippians 1 his 6. His purposes. His purposes, you know, but he'll bring, he'll, he'll, what he, the good work he began in you, he will bring to completion until the day of Jesus. Doesn't mean you won't be persecuted. Doesn't mean you might not die. Doesn't mean you might not have problems. In fact, John will tell you that and is the mark of, of a Christian is that they'll be suffering the problems. But mm-hmm. I think the beauty here is that not only are we seeing this cosmic war, but I think it really centers this, this book whose being written to persecuted Christians, letting them know that, hey, your battle is a much more cosmic battle than you could ever imagine. And the way in which God's kingdom wins is completely the opposite of the way the world wins. It gives us some perspective um, that when we are going through suffering and we are going through difficulty, we know who the enemy is, we, we know that God's gonna ultimately win, and we know that we're ultimately gonna persevere because we're the people of God who've been washed in the blood and we're willing to give our testimony. The true mark of those that have been washed by the blood of the lamb is that they're willing to follow Jesus in the same pattern that he followed, which is to give his life for others. Suffering in the hope of glory. That's exactly right. Yeah,
1: We know that right. there will be glory on the other side. That's, right. That's why the martyrs could run to the teeth of the lions because they knew on the other side of that momentary suffering, was Jesus waiting to receive them?
0: I always uh, um, he he you know in the beginning of Revelation we'll, we'll do this, but he says, uh, um, "Your partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus." Unfortunately, in America, we think that the kingdom is just mm-hmm. you know all about our best life and all of this stuff. But in reality, the the the, the flow of grace, the flow, the rhythm of, of just being a Christian is suffering that leads to glory. You know that there, there mm-hmm. will be difficulties. But we understand in those difficulties, God is doing something in our lives to get us prepared. And this world is really not the place that we're being prepared for. The, the, this world is not what should give us satisfaction. We, we should realize that we're being prepared in this world for what is to come. And if we had those horizons, it changes the way I think we, we see a lot of the difficulty of life.
1: I think Paul understands that, he says the, the sufferings of this present yeah. age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will come.
0: That's right. Well, we've got to start here. Listeners probably are probably a little overwhelmed with a lot of the scriptures and stuff that we're, we're put in, but but we'll continue to flesh this out. But I think the important thing is to realize that, hey, this is the, the, the center of the book and, and what's going on here is important, but it has sort of a cascading effect because it it does sort of draw in some echoes that are coming from John, and it also draws some echoes that are coming from First John. Is there something there? Is there authorship there? Is, there? is there commonalities or themes? A lot of work still to do, but good stuff. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you follow us and give us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts.